family. Yeah, absolutely. During what period who was playing there? Uh, I mean, I, I was graduate high school there in 1988, and so I actually had a job working at the games. They, they used to have a, a wooden scoreboard that, that you know, Coach Dean Smith used to help track the score on, on the practice game film. So it was sort of a low-tech thing. So it was an actual scoreboard sitting at the end of the bench. Yeah. And I got to do that for six years. Hey. So I got to see, you know, obviously Michael Jordan, Sam Perkins, Kenny Smith, J.R. Reed, all these guys. That's the dream. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, this cool when they show an ESPN clip of Jordan from, uh, you know, the UNC days, a lot of times you can see me there. <laughs> Here we go. Hey, folks. Let me tell you about Dr. Thad Williamson. He's an associate professor of leadership studies uh, in philosophy, economics, and law at the University of Richmond, with a research focus on the intersection of social justice and public policy, specifically in urban politics. Uh, he's long been involved in efforts to reduce poverty in Richmond, serving as the first director of the city's Office of Community Wealth Building, which is charged with implementing comprehensive poverty reduction strategies. This includes education, employment, housing, and transportation. The work of this office has been recognized nationally as a promising municipal model for addressing issues of poverty in urban settings. Uh, Dr. Williamson previously served on the Mayor's Anti-Poverty Commission and as the co-chair of the Maggie L. Walker Initiative for Expanding Opportunity and Fighting Poverty. Dr. Williamson currently serves as the Senior Policy Advisor for Opportunity to Richmond Mayor LeVar Stoney. Uh, he has co-edited several books, including Property, Owning Democracy, Rawls and Beyond, Leadership and Global Justice, and The Civic Costs of the American Way of Life, and has authored multiple books, including Making a Place for Community, Local Democracy in a Global Era, and More Than a Game, Why North Carolina Basketball Means uh, So Much to So Many. Uh, he is currently working on a book-length study of contemporary Richmond with Dr. Amy Howard at the University of Richmond. He serves on the Board of Richmond Opportunities Incorporated, the Richmond Public Schools Education Foundation, and the Editorial Board of the Good Society. He received the University of Richmond's Distinguished Educator Award in 2012. I have no idea how you had time for an interview on top of all that you have going on. It's Friday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, may we all have Friday afternoons to ourselves, right? Um, Dr. Williamson, what is the purpose of public schools? I think that's one of the key things is we have multiple purposes. People expect very different things from them. I, I think you know in the everyday discourse that you hear political and business leaders should talk about is always emphasis on sort of uh, workforce development or producing the next generation of people who are going to be productive. We're closely related to that the idea that public schools are supposed to be a mechanism for upward social mobility you know, in a way that everybody gets some form of, of opportunity in our society. And it is, um, at the end of the day, one of the only things this particular society agrees to make available to everybody. You know, the only, it's, one, it's the biggest thing we do in common is supporting uh, public education. And, and despite some recent changes, challenges, there's still a strong consensus behind that. But, you know, from my liberal arts professor point of view I have other mm. views you know on what education is supposed to do and particularly about uh, promoting uh, uh, 
citizenship, you know, in a deep way, people who are uh, trained in understand the importance too of contributing to your community and helping sustain it and, and improve it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's something that people have looked to public schools to play a, a big role in doing. And then there's just like human development in, in, in general, you know, in a free society, we want people to be able to shape their own direction, mm-hmm. you know, and everyone does that in a particular context. There's always limitations, you know, there's things that are beyond our control, but we don't want to go around thinking that everything is just forced upon us, mm-hmm. you know, and, and if education can open up not only sort of conventional opportunities, although those are very, very, very important, but also opportunities to grow and learn in different directions and sort of try out your capabilities mm-hmm. in, in all directions. I think that's absolutely, I mean, you know, it, the test is people who can afford to pay for private school, that's what they pay for a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, as a basically egalitarian, you know, politically, that's what I think should be available to everybody, you know. Yeah, and, then, and then the last piece, you know, obviously where a society is deeply marked by racial and class division and it's it's encoded in history, it's encoded in geography, and we do look to schools to help be a mechanism for social yeah, integration. I think that is also a legitimate purpose. Some people that I've uh, spoken with this summer for this series have made the point that it's not even necessarily that uh, schools are seen as one of the forces that's meant to address some of those social inequities that we see, but a lot of times they're tasked as um, seemingly the only institution that can do that, which maybe puts undue pressure on our public school system to um, fix everything that we're um, struggling with as a society. Is that anything that you've noticed? Well, uh, yes, it's absolutely the case that um, we put way, way too much on public schools to be um, the magic potion that solves everything. But I think it comes down to a lot of the reason that's the case is because people see it sometimes as the only policy instrument that we have. Like, we don't have a real commitment to providing affordable housing to everybody. I mean, the the federal government hasn't built new public housing units, you know, in in decades, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, to actually add capacity, to take an example. You know, we don't have a consensus that everybody should have access to a job, mm. you know, or, or some sort of, you know, basic income. Uh, so there are lots of things that other societies maybe have done more of embracing in terms of policy tools, uh, but schools is what we have. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes it, it, people see it as the only thing we have. And I don't think that's quite right, but, but that's, that's often the perception. And, and so that's why you know, what else is at hand? Let's put everything on the schools. Yeah. And the work that you've done over time, you've had a, a chance to kind of understand the landscape of the issues and challenges facing our public schools. I'm wondering what's a challenge that's at the forefront right now that you're particularly focused on or that you think is a particular concern for our public school system as a whole in our country right now? Well, I think there's two broad ones that come to mind. Uh, I'll do the one that's maybe most directly important to Richmond second. But I mean, the first one is how do you take the correct impulse that there should be some kind of accountability uh, in, in the system and, and that we have should have some kind of way of figuring out whether the investments being made are doing what they're supposed to do. How do you get that without putting everybody in the system in kind of a straitjacket mm-hmm. governed by standardized tests? Mm-hmm. You know, and you may have caught me on the right day just rereading Plato's Republic, Book Nine, and you know his 
proposed educational system. Yeah, yeah. Expose the kids to all the subjects, but don't do it through compulsory learning. Mm-hmm. Use play, because that way you'll really figure out what who's best suited for for what. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and people learn that way uh, more naturally. You know, and, and I don't think you can take that literally, but but there's certainly something to that. Mm-hmm. You know, that that I, I think. Uh, concerns me is, is being lost and you know they're related to that um how do you make the teaching profession something that honors people as professionals mm-hmm. who have thoughts on their own and should have freedom to experiment and have ideas and treat their own classroom to some degree as uh, a work of creativity that has to be different from year to year and i was fortunate i grew up in chapel north carolina went to public schools all the way through it's a really strong system there. It's a college town, which maybe makes it easier. But, you know, I had a lot of creative teachers, you know. Um, and also some of them were like old school, but 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 but, but totally awesome, mm-hmm. you, you know. And everyone had their different style. And I, I get concerned now when, when, you know, education, it's ultimately about communication and relationships between people. And there's only so much someone from the outside can do to interfere with the integrity of a particular relationship. Mm-hmm. So how do we get the balance between that and also have accountability i think is a huge not yet answered question sure you, you know so th- so that's like the first one the second one is obviously connects to um poverty and socioeconomic mm. I- I- environment and how uh we take the other steps besides supporting public schools and, and supporting investment in public schools how do you take the other steps to address those issues that kids are facing because of the socioeconomic disparities mm-hmm. uh in our society and also you know how do we in fact use schools to be mechanisms of social and economic integration because a lot of times right now they're actually reinforcing segregation i want to unpack a little bit about what you were saying with accountability because that's something that we've talked about a lot this summer in the series is um the importance of things like relationships in education for teachers to be able to connect with their students and how that's something that um is critical but it's also not necessarily measurable and because mm-hmm. of that it's hard to um, legislate or um, create policies in a way that support uh, an education system that um, fosters relationship building and that that's the priority. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you're saying, you do also have to strike that balance of you need some sort of accountability there. So how much do you feel like our teachers currently have the autonomy to do what they need to do to be able to teach effectively? How much are they treated like professionals in the work that they do? Well, I think it varies a lot from system to system and maybe to school to school you know and my, my perception and maybe others have a, a better informed or more nuanced view but but you know my perception and, and worry is that it's our low-income schools they're having sort of the most disciplinarian regime in terms of what the teachers are expected to do hmm. and it's not hard to understand why that's the case because that's those are the schools that are likely not to be getting accreditation hmm. you know and so there's pressure on superintendent pressure on the principals translation to pressure uh on on the teachers and so on the one hand you could argue from a social point of view it's good that we're paying attention to results in those schools mm-hmm. you know and there's some way to look at it but it becomes a question how is the right the right way what's there really the right way to adequately support um uh teachers you know in, in a tax so i i'm, I'm not Opposed the idea of having like a general curriculum where some things we expect all students mm-hmm. uh, to learn, um, you know, on a community-wide basis. Because I do think that that's part of sort of program community-wide integration, and it's a way to pull children who may be growing up in somewhat marginalized communities and give them a chance to 
mm-hmm. enter the mainstream is knowing some basic stuff that everyone else knows. There's nothing wrong as, as such as that, but having enough trust in the teachers and professionals to give them some flexibility as to means. And, and, and that means, but what I mean is trust professionals. It doesn't mean that we expect them to know all the answers or do it right. Mm-hmm. It's that there's a process in place of support through the principal or some other person where they can get hands-on, real-time feedback, have conversations with, have time to reflect on, mm-hmm. you know, and and be supported in doing that. So, like, you know, real, real high-quality professional development. Because, um, yeah, honestly, you know, I'm a professor at University of Richmond. The job those, kids, those teachers in RPS do is way more important than my job, you know. But I, I have a lot of flexibility to teach in the classroom. You know, they come in and check... Before I got tenure, they came and checked and made sure everything was okay, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, but, but you know, and I'm not to say that public ed- schools can be exactly the same, but there has to be has to be more in that direction, mm-hmm. I think. And also, and, and it's, it's key for another reason, is when, when it goes that direction, we're getting more and more people who want to do it. Yeah. Uh, what role do you see research playing in advancing public education? Well, I mean, it's what it does <laughs> now, uh, which... Uh, uh, and, and what it should, mm-hmm. you know, and people want the research to find the magic bullet. And I think the best researchers are humble and say it ain't there, you know, and, and that you need a, a lot of strategies in play all at the same time, and they, and they have to be adjusted to the particular situation uh, you're in. But, but, you know, but broadly speaking, you know, first of all, to understand something like, like Richmond, you have to have the historical knowledge. You, you know, you're negligent as a leader in this school community if you don't know what happened basically between Brown versus Board Education and mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Because that completely shapes the way we've organized our system. And also it's important to understand the experiences the, of the parents of many of our kids mm-hmm. who came through the, the same system in, in, in Richmond. Yeah, and a lot of history is... Uh, sad and painful not all of it but, but, but a good chunk of it but I think having that historical context is absolutely critical um, but you know I think like a lot of social science research it strikes me I'm not education research is not my primary field but a lot of times it gets drilled down to like very very narrow questions mm-hmm. you know and, and like what particular intervention is going to move test scores two or three points you know mm-hmm. and I, I, I like to see more holistic kinds of inquiries to, it, partly because my goals are bigger. I don't want to move things two or three points. I want to mm-hmm. see societal move changes in, 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 in a much bigger way. But but I do think research institutions have an obligation to do good work, but do work that's translatable and usable by public officials. And especially, I mean, this is we're a democratic society, and part of that what that means is we elect people who may not have professional training mm. in education to be you know, school board leaders. Mm-hmm. And that's what it means to have democracy. And to make that work well, those folks who may be great folks, you know, are often great folks, need to have access to quality research, to, not to tell them what to do, but to give them some parameters mm-hmm. about here's the range of things that might happen, here's the range of things you need to think about, here's the kinds of experiences that our communities have had that have tried this for you to think about, you know, and at least have your decision be is uh, uh, as, as informed as possible, but but also you know, you know broadly, it would be great if we had some broad agreement at least on here are some basic strategies 
that we think will work. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and honestly, I think there is some ideas that are pretty <laughs> tried and true and, and mm-hmm. likely to be effective, but but there's not yet enough consensus, you know, at, at the public level on that. So I think research uh, can help with that. So it seems like. Um Research is critical for helping to inform decision-making processes, but perhaps where it can fall short oftentimes is that we we don't always do a great job of attending to the um, robust context from which our students and their families come from and understanding history and where things are situated in those things. There's a Mm -hmm. lot that goes into somebody living in poverty that we can't fully capture in any kind of measure. Yeah, poverty, it's... There's poverty as you know, an economic statistic, which is the way it's often talked about, and, and there's poverty as uh, lived experience, mm-hmm. w- which is complex. And um, yeah, and one of the things I think we learned through the work the Anti-Poverty Commission did, which ultimately led it to being flipped to start talking about community wealth building, is we are precisely not saying that the lives of people who are below certain income threshold don't have value or don't have positive things in it or don't have assets to be celebrated hmm. and don't have things to contribute to the community. Hmm. Absolutely. You know, you know, but the, the, the question, the, the issue is that, A, there is more likely to be serious deprivation, hmm. you know, and, and B, folks don't have enough resources to truly develop those skills and gifts they have in the directions that they could potentially go. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a loss for them and it's a loss to society. Um, but but that, that's a much more nuanced views and sort of say, oh, those are the poor and they're over here, mm-hmm. you know, which is, a, you know, a danger that research only looks at numbers on a page falls into. Um, let's talk about your work with the Education Compact. Okay. It's been um, ongoing news here in Richmond. What are its goals? How has it developed? Tell us about it. Sure. Um, so, um, yeah, I should start by saying you know, I'm an RPS parent and have been since you know, 2011. And with the previous mayor, uh, Dwight Jones, you know, my wife and I actually were among the community leaders out there putting pressure on him to increase school funding mm-hmm. back in the 2012 you know, budget debates. Um, and I, but, but because I had relationships already with some folks on city council and some folks in the administration because of my work on the anti-poverty commission. I, I realized even then that we can't see this issue with one eye mm-hmm. and that the, the fiscal challenges, fiscal needs rich public schools face are profound and they're real, but they're in the context of a city that itself has profound, huge needs. Mm-hmm. And so there has to be some way to holistically address all those things together mm-hmm. um so that that and then you know the next few years i, I worked for dwight jones for for a while you know leading the um community wealth building effort for a couple of years and had a lot of interaction with uh richmond public schools some of the programs that we started at that time and I, it, it kind of stunned me to like walk in a, a meeting about early childhood and realize you had city folks who are working with parents and young families and you had RPS folk running Head Start and the preschool program and yet there was no real connectivity or relationship mm-hmm. there and that seems like a correctable issue mm-hmm. you know and so I had a good experience working under Mayor Jones building collaborations with RPS and, and that made me 
think that we could extend that idea and take it to a larger scale. Mm-hmm. You know, there'd be a rare opportunity. But, but the second thing is, is simply, it's about a better budgetary and policy process. Mm-hmm. And that our city desperately needs, because everyone is tired year after year of schools folks feeling like the city budget is their one shot to affect anything. And it's understandable, um, it's logical, but there has to be a better way. And so from that point of view, from the city council point of view, they're looking at this and saying, we have to listen to 15 other agencies who are also asking for things that are also mm-hmm. important. And also, we don't administer rich and public schools. We don't oversee the administration. So how do we know that we're getting a good return on our investment? Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to improve a lot of these schools substantially without addressing the community context at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, especially, you know, you know, looking at our highest poverty communities you know when a kid is struggling at home uh maybe having a lot of housing instability maybe witness traumatic events mm-hmm. you know family instability parents not having work not having good enough work losing work all those kinds of things have an impact on kids and then when you're clustering lots of those kids in the same classroom um you know it's no surprise that the learning function is gonna uh, take a hit mm-hmm. You know, and so really in a high poverty school system like, like, like Richmond has, the education piece and uh, the fight against poverty piece literally had to be seen as the same thing. Mm. So then what happened was that he w- was elected uh, in November and uh, his team, which you know, a part of went right to work to start having those conversations with school board and then a little bit later bring on city council members to say hey this is what we're trying to do uh that it's different we really want to cooperate with you let's figure out a framework that makes sense and and you know and we got really great response from from everybody Mm. you know of course questions and dialogue and conversations and also we we were we had been meeting with the rps administration at the the time too Mm. uh there was a working group established uh, with a couple of council members, a couple of school board members, the RPS, senior administration, city senior administration, to develop um, a framework for collaboration. As so we call that, like the compact, mm-hmm. you know, and part of it is simply institutional collaboration, which is we're going to meet together on a regular basis. We're going to have a children's cabinet, there's different agencies brought together talking about issues of overlapping, share concern, developing strategies, ways to work together. Mm-hmm. You know, and then thirdly, sort of a, a stakeholder team to really tackle some of the tough issues on the financial side, especially as related to facilities. You know, there's a, a bias towards status quo. So the thought is, okay, if we're going to do something different, bold, let's at least have the conversation about it in advance. And let's, let's at least try to see if we can build some public support for it before we get into that budgetary process mm-hmm. you know and, and honestly let's have a year-round conversation about education as opposed to education discussion that happens you know once a year that was um th- the framework on the um collaboration side and the second piece is you know having some shared goals you know and in the high level goals you know we know looking at statistics there's huge gaps in performance mm-hmm. but, but we accept that as a community mm-hmm. we're basically saying injustice is okay so as a baseline can't we say as a minimum that we expect our kids, our kids can do as well as the kids statewide. Mm-hmm. Understanding how hard that will be in practice, but that morally that has to be our goal. Mm-hmm. And, and likewise on the, on the city side, hand in hand, but the city has already adopted this goal of trying to reduce poverty mm-hmm. by um, 
40 percent by 2030 and child poverty 50 percent by 2030 through um, the work of um, the Office of Community Wealth Building, but in a whole network of, of organizations and, and service agencies trying to build a seamless path for, for families to, you know, to get you know, into a stronger economic situation. You know, and then the third piece we talked about was the um, funding strategy. You know, because we know that if we have an honest accounting, here's what it really take to put in high quality educational strategies within the system. Okay, and here's what it really take to address early childhood. And here's what it really take to get hundreds more parents a year into better jobs. Yeah, and here's what it really take to do after school programs for everybody. And so we can either look at that number and run away from it. Or we can say that yeah, that is what it is. Hmm. At least now we're talking honestly about what it is, and also saying, you know what, we may not be able to meet all that gap right away because guess what? If we don't have public utilities, we don't have public works, we don't have a police department, we don't have a fire department, hmm. don't we, we don't have parks, then we don't have a city, right? right? Or a city worth living in, hmm. right? So, so you can't just drop all those other balls and say we're only going to do one thing. It's all part of a holistic context. What you can do is develop a strategy that gives relative priority to the needs of education mm-hmm. and families. And the compact is, is designed to do that. It's going to put uh, the cause and the need of education on the front burner and make sure it stays there and can't be buried by anybody. Everybody's mm-hmm. got to own it. Uh, what's the future of public schools? So, future of public schools. My snap response to that it is whatever we make them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think uh, going back to the earlier conversation about about Citizenship. I mean, I, I do think that public engagement uh, makes makes a big difference. I, I think that the earlier question about how we, without going backwards, and I, I argue even going forwards with with, with accountability and attention to inequities, and, and 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 you know not shoving those to the side, but addressing them. How to blend that with reprofessionalization of teaching, mm. you know, and. Uh, maybe a healthier, more realistic view of how kids learn, mm. you know, in that creative process. I think uh, there's a movement waiting to happen, you know, the, the figures out a way to put those two things together. I certainly don't have all the answers, but I think that's a big question mm. that's out there. You know, and because and if not, you know, then those people who perhaps well-intended, but nonetheless, just because where they sit may have a more reductive view, um, we get more of the same we've had and, and maybe even get worse hmm. so you know I, I think I would hope our, our leaders can set bold goals to say we want schools to be effective vehicles for helping develop whole people hmm. you know and, and then take that as a starting point and then go from there uh, Dr. Williamson thanks for your time and perspective and for your service to the city of Richmond and to our students at Richmond Public Schools we're grateful thank you thank you